Mark 10. Let's just jump in together. Mark 10, 17 through 31. It's a passage that doesn't seem to be, and it's not explicitly about building community in the sense that we're asking the question today. I get that. Don't worry. We'll return to that. But let's look at Mark 10 and see what we can learn in some ways that help us. Let's dive in together and learn about being a kingdom community that challenges us to become who God created us to be. Verse 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, the he here is Jesus. He's setting his face toward the cross, toward Jerusalem. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before. He ran up, a sign of eagerness, and he knelt before Jesus, which is a sign of deference or respect, uh, and asked him, he asked Jesus, he says, good teacher, which is another sign of respect, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Listen again to how he asked that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He doesn't ask, where do I find it? How does one receive it? He doesn't even ask sort of generically, hey, uh, Jesus, good teacher, how does this whole uh, eternal life thing work? Because you seem to know, and I want to know. He asks very specifically, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man is asking this question uh, from a distinctly Jewish perspective that assumed that gaining eternal life happened by keeping the Old Testament law perfectly. There, was, there are many examples throughout history of rabbis and, and Jews talking about themselves keeping the law perfectly, thus earning for themselves, inheriting salvation. And he uses the word inheritance, which is a Jewish way of speaking about being part of the family of God. So he adds to that inheritance, this concept of earning it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? (laughs) But as this man's about to find out from Jesus, of course, you don't inherit eternal life. You don't get it or earn it. You receive it. I mean, just think about the concept of inheritance in general terms, like apart from eternal life. You don't do something to get an inheritance. You are given an inheritance someone else earned for you. The same is true of eternal life. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says we're saved by grace. This is not of our own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of our work so that no one can boast. In other words, salvation comes by grace that comes from God and not from our works. So because in this conversation already, Jesus can tell there's something about this guy that's off kilter because of the way he asked the question, because Jesus can already sense that, and because he wants this man to receive eternal life, Jesus asks him a question. Look at verse 18. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? That's actually in the emphatic there. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God Alone. Jesus wants this man to receive eternal life, so he directs this man's attention to God the Father. You call me, you call me good teacher, Jesus is saying to this man, but but if you want to know true goodness, go to the Father. Look to Him, because from Him comes all goodness. Jesus knows that for this man to have eternal life, he must acknowledge God the Father as the source of all goodness. So Jesus keeps talking and directs him to the commandments. 
the Ten Commandments and all of the Old Testament law and Scripture express God's goodness in practical form. But look at verse 19. He says, you know the commandments. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud on your father and mother. He recounts some of the Old Testament law here to make sure that this man understands God as the source of goodness. But check this out. Instead of acknowledging the goodness of God, this man responds to Jesus with his own personal spiritual resume of sorts. Look at what he says in response in verse 20. And he said to him, he said to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. All these I have kept from my youth. Jesus, I went to Sunday school. I memorized the books of the Bible. I went to youth groups. I went to youth conferences and mission trips. Been there, done that. Wore the t-shirt. Like even at school. I took my Bible to school, Jesus. I'm the golden boy of goodness. <laughs> Went to church, did the right thing, followed the law, did what I'm supposed to. Now give me eternal life. But Jesus returns his hope for recognition with rebuke. Because, remember, Jesus is trying to move this man beyond trust in self and his own goodness to trust in God's goodness. And so he presses the issue with this man to the heart of the matter. Look at verse 21. And Jesus, this is great, looking at him, loved him. Jesus looking at him loved him. Uh, By the way, it is never love to withhold the truth of God from somebody. We sometimes comfort ourselves by calling cowardice tact. I'm not saying be mean. (laughs) Be kind. But it is unloving to withhold the truth of God from someone. Jesus' rebuke here is because he loved him. That's sort of parenthetical and interesting and and good to remember. So, (laughs) Jesus looked at him and loved him, verse 21, and said to him, you lack one thing. Because I love you, do this. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now this isn't Jesus saying, this is how you earn eternal life. This is the test of the heart of this man's faith. This is Jesus saying, behavior like this, in your case, willingness to go sell all your possessions and give to the poor, that is a sign that you have received eternal life. Because listen, once you have Jesus, the ultimate treasure, Jesus is saying, I am the treasure. Who needs material possessions, really? What Jesus is saying here is he's testing this man and saying, you want eternal life? I mean, if you really want eternal life, if you're serious about earning eternal life, then stop putting your trust in your personal spiritual resume Stop putting your trust in your wealth and your ability to control things with money. Instead of trust in that, go sell all you have and give your possessions to the poor. And then you will have the forever treasure that is me, Jesus says. Pretty heavy words for this young man with wealth to hear. Jesus got to the jugular 
He cut to the heart. Uh, And verse 22 is Mark's sort of editorial comment on how this man responded. Look at this. Disheartened by the saying. He went away sorrowful, and here's the kicker, for he had great possessions. Jesus had struck to the heart. The truth of the matter that Jesus reveals here is that this man was trusting in himself and his wealth. He was self-reliant and arrogant. And Jesus was asking him to sacrifice in order to gain eternal life. And that was a sacrifice this man was not willing to make. So, Jesus uses that that conversation as a teaching moment with his disciples. And this is where we begin to see some of the application for us as it relates to community. Look at verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's difficult uh, not because of having wealth per se, but because wealth easily deceives us into thinking we do not need God. In very simple terms, it easily deceives us into thinking we don't need God because, well, who needs to trust in God's goodness when we can control our lives with money? Let me ask it this way. Who needs to trust in God when you can easily fix and manage your problems with money? But Jesus says, be forewarned. Financial security can deceive us into thinking we do not need the Lord. Pause. Some of you here today know this is true. Keep moving. So Jesus says to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples hear this and they're taken aback. Mark says, verse 24, yes, Mark says they were amazed. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, again, children, he's starting to use family, community language. We'll talk about that a little more. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God for anybody. For anybody, not just just wealthy people. He's applying this to them now. He says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus was being... Uh, purposely hyperbolic. He was being intentionally sort of extreme. Um, He was being intentionally extreme to make a point that even a rich person cannot enter the kingdom of God, that any person, not just a rich person, but that any person cannot enter the kingdom of God by their own power. And so Mark says that the disciples hear this. They hear Jesus saying to them, it's not just about the rich people who have a hard time. It's all people. It's It's as difficult as a camel going through the eye of a needle. And they hear that and they go, well then, verse 24. I'm sorry, six. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Like they hear this from Jesus and like, who in the world at all can be saved? Jesus says, aha, you're starting to hear it. You're starting to get it. You're beginning to understand Verse 27, he looks at them and says, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. In other words, with God, a camel can fit through the eye of a needle. In other words, 
a person can be saved. People can be saved not by merit of their own goodness, but because of the grace of God's goodness given to them. Jesus is in effect saying, you being saved is as, is as unlikely as a camel fitting through the eye of a needle. But in fact, in the kingdom of God, it's possible. So just as it seems like the disciples begin to get it, Peter chimes up. Self-appointed spokesman to the disciples, Peter says this in verse 28. See, Jesus, you say it's impossible. Look, we have left everything and followed you. Like, check us out, Jesus. The impossibility of giving up everything like that man couldn't is possible. Because we've given up everything and we are so awesome. Listen to Jesus' response, which admittedly is a strange way to end this whole scene. But as we'll see, it makes sense when we begin to apply some of the point that Jesus is making here. Verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands. This is that family of God talk. All of this stuff that makes up family and security, there's no one who's left all of that for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. And then he lists all that same stuff from which comes security and family, except, by the way, for fathers, because in this new kingdom, God alone is father. There is no one who has left all that who will not receive a hundredfold, verse 30, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. A strange detail. Thanks for that, Jesus. With persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. In this new kingdom family, those who don't need anything are last, and those who need everything are first. Today's message is part two of Really Believe. And in this series, we're asking the question, what is the fruit of our lives that shows what the root really is? How do our actions tell the real story about what we really believe about God, ourselves, and the world. We've titled today's message, uh, I Want Community, but only if it's convenient and affirms me. So what does this passage have to do <laughs> with Christian community? All week long, I kept asking myself this question, and I'll say it twice because it's a bit complicated. Why does Jesus end this scene involving a rich man unwilling to sacrifice self and the disciples who are at least on the face of it willing to sacrifice self? Why does he end this scene with a redefinition of family that experiences persecution? He sort of throws it in at the end. <laughs> oh yeah, with persecutions. Why does Jesus end this scene why does Jesus end this scene with the rich man who's unwilling to sacrifice self and the disciples who are willing to sacrifice self by speaking of a family that experiences persecution? I think here's why, in basic terms. The kingdom of God consists of friendships and relationships 
what we call community. They're not based on affinity or the world's definitions or circumstances that brought you together or potlucks. The kingdom of God consists of friendships and relationships and community that has Christ at the center and the glory of God as its mission. That's Christian community. And if Christ is not the center and the glory of God is not the mission, then you're a part of a different family. You see, the foundation of the friendship has to be bigger and more important than the difficulties that will arise within our relationships. You know that's true in any meaningful relationship you have. The foundation of the friendship has to be bigger and more important than the difficulties that will arise. Christ is the only foundation for eternal friendships. The mission of the glory of God is the only foundation for a lasting relationship. If it's about something else, you will pervert that relationship. This is why sometimes some people you thought were connected to you end up leaving. Not always, but sometimes. Because it turns out the connection wasn't about the common purpose of Christ and His mission as much as you thought. Which is to say, if we are not a community of Jesus-based friendships aligned around the mission of the glory of God, we will unravel relationally when the going gets tough. If we aren't a community of Jesus-based friendships aligned around the mission of the glory of God, we will unravel when the going gets tough. We will leave when pushed to growth. The rich man was unwilling to move past recognition of his own goodness. He came to Jesus seeking a validation of who he had already been, of who he had become. Look at me, Jesus, golden boy of goodness. He came to Jesus seeking a validation of who he had become. And Jesus said, this is not where you are to stay. We're much more like that man than we think oftentimes. Often I think we come to, to Jesus and to church and to the community of faith. Or we come to serving on a team. We come to connecting a life group. We talk a good game like we really want the goodness of God to be at the center of this. We, we really want that. But often we confuse our seeking a validation of self with mission. A lot of times, our relationships are far more than we care to admit about seeking a validation of what we've done or who we've become. Listen, I've seen it happen time and time and time again. When building meaningful Christian relationships begins to take time or effort or begins to ask us to change or to go beyond what we've known 
or when it begins to challenge me to become something different than I already am, or when it calls me to a mission for which I might suffer, often, when the going gets tough, the people get going. Away. The relationships unravel. Friends, this is, this is truth. The body of Christ is about your growth. Just that's hard to, to come to terms with. The body of Christ is about your growth. It's about you becoming someone you are not yet. To become someone who is more deeply engaged in kingdom life to the point where you apply to this family of mission that suffers persecutions that Jesus has talked about. To become someone who freely admits along the way that it's God's goodness alone that deserves glory and honor. Friends, becoming someone whose Christian friendships are about helping people find and follow Jesus is what we're about. We're about asking you to come along in creating an environment where people find and follow Jesus. That doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. It takes practice. It takes discipline. That's why we're building Christian community around what we call the nine habits. And some of you already knew I was going there. I want you to, I want you to, to listen closely as I just read through these nine habits. I, I want you to hear these. I want you to hear these today as a call to meaningful engagement in a community that is about your growth and God's goodness. Engage in worship, serve on a team, connect in a life group, pray and study your Bible, pursue generosity, do a project together, identify with Christ in baptism, commit to the church as a member, and tell the story. Hear these as a call to engage meaningfully in a community of people that is about your growth and God's glory. Because this community is not merely about validating who you already are. It is mostly about challenging you to become who God wants you to be. That's personal fruitfulness that looks like what God's doing in the world. Let's pray, friends.